Well, this morning, uh, our passage that we will consider together is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them and turn there. The, uh, the text is also printed just before the, or after the song we just sang. Next week, uh, we will uh, begin a, a new series in the book of Habakkuk, that, that small little Old Testament um, prophetic book. It's only three chapters, and so I, I really in- encourage you to uh, just take a look at those three chapters at some point this week, and then uh, we'll spend uh, a few weeks looking at that book of Habakkuk. This is one of those times where we're between Christmas and New Year's, and so what, what's, the, what's the filler sermon? between series. We just finished Advent. We're going to head into Habakkuk. So what's, what's the filler? And so uh, I, I think what you're looking for, which I hope we get today together, is you're looking back, uh, still reflecting on what Jesus has done in becoming man as, as, we, as we still are, are, are thinking about Christmas and the incarnation. But also, we're looking ahead to the new year. Um, we, we do need to take account of the rhythm of, of a year ending and a new year beginning. And what does it look like to live into the new year walking with Christ and with one another. And so hopefully 1 Corinthians 13 fits just that bill. And so uh, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Back in October 2007, a wildfire broke out in North County, San Diego. Uh, It's no surprise that a wildfire broke out at some particular point in time around where we live. Uh, this was the Witch Fire, which today is, uh, is still considered to be the sixth most destructive fire in California history. And it meant that Cassie and I uh, needed to evacuate our apartment in Escondido. Uh, we did not have children at the time, but we needed to evacuate from our apartment. And so here, when, when I look back at that fire, here's what comes to my mind as, as I reflect on that time. My priorities in terms of what I grabbed as we had to evacuate. I mean, this is a question hopefully we've all considered, right? You get, you get the text that says you need to evacuate. Uh, other than people and pets, what things are you grabbing as you hit the road? And so what did I grab? What did I prioritize? I packed two giant suitcases filled with books. In my memory, it's as if the flames are dancing just outside the window, and I'm sitting before my bookshelves thinking, what books need to come with me? For me at that time, my treasured possessions, my priority above all, obviously, was books. The uh, 16th century scholar Erasmus, who famously sparred with Martin Luther, he once quipped, when I have money, I buy books, and when I have more money, I buy food. That was me 14 years ago. 
In case of emergency, what do you prioritize? As parents, we talk a lot about instilling values in our children. We also instill priorities in our households. And so therefore, a common refrain in my household, which is said often, is that people are more important than things. I understand you want to strangle your sibling for wrecking your Lego set, but people are more important than things. We all live to some extent according to what we prioritize. Our families are governed by what we prioritize, and of course, our churches are governed and operate according to what we prioritize. This means that we have certain things that we deem as vital and important and essential and uncompromising, and we place those so very high, but those things that we don't prioritize, they tend to slip to the bottom. And now here's where the problem comes in. It's possible that we can put at the bottom of our priority list something that maybe Scripture says should be at the very top. You know where I'm going because Paul just told us what should be at the top of our priority list. See, a big problem in 1 Corinthians and the church of Corinth at the time when Paul's writing to this church is that they have a lot of important things going on. They have a lot of things that they need to be prioritizing. And one of the big issues that they had in their church was a sense of competition that existed among the members when it came specifically to spiritual gifts. So you have these gifts which are meant to edify the body. The Holy Spirit sovereignly gave and distributed these gifts in the body of Christ For the good of the church, and those gifts become a tremendous source of division and competition. We would say gifts are helpful, gifts are necessary in the body of Christ. There's a diversity of gifts, which is like part and parcel of what these gifts mean, and yet some were boasting about their gifts. Some were saying, you should all have my spiritual gift, or, or at least saying, you should at least acknowledge that my spiritual gift is the greatest and you're not so hot. And so we have this environment of comparison and resentment and boasting. And the Apostle Paul steps in. He reflects on this disunity and this chaos and this mess in the church. And that's a word that's relevant for us because outside on on, on the doorstep of every church and every age, we have our own disunity and chaos and mess that's threatening. And Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, I will still show you a more excellent way. And that's what we need to reflect on. What is this more excellent way? In light of all of this competition, there is something that you are missing. What was intended to serve is being misused. And so there's this missing ingredient that the church is like a structure, but it has no foundation. And again, that's a word for us because that that threat to unity, um, that threat of chaos is always outside of our door. So what's the priority? Well, spoiler alert, because we just read it, it's love. Love is the priority. So our two points today are, where does love belong? And it's first priority, it's right at the top. And then secondly, that's great, love is so important, but what does it look like? And boy, does Paul get specific. And so first point, where does love uh, belong? And then the second point is, what does love look like? Where love belongs, first priority Again, 1 Corinthians 13 uses spiritual gifts as the case study. What is essential to the exercise of gifts? And and what does Paul tell us is the first priority? In the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul intentionally wants to grab us, and he wants to shock us 
into understanding just how essential love is. He wanted to shock the Corinthian church. He wants to shock us as we read this passage today. And so in verse 1, he puts up this hypothetical. If, supposing that, you have the gift of speaking in the tongues of men or of angels, but you have not love, you are a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. What's he talking about here? Now, this is one of the most controversial topics in Scripture. What does he mean speaking in tongues? I believe that the tongues that Paul is speaking to are known human languages. So when you go to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the apostles at this international Jewish festival. And so you have pilgrims from all over the known world, all over the empire, and all of a sudden, through the gifting of the Spirit, the gospel is proclaimed in the language of the people. And so this would be like me. I'm, I'm tagging along with Dan down to Cuba, right? And all of a sudden, listen, I am of Cuban descent, and to my shame, I don't really speak Spanish. I don't understand Spanish, but I'm with Dan. I kick him out of the way, and I start preaching boldly and authoritatively because the Holy Spirit has gifted me with this language. So that's an astounding gift. It's a supernatural gift. It contributed to the growth and expansion of the church across the Roman Empire, across the known world of the apostles and of, and of, and of the next generations. And Paul says, listen, that's great that you speak in the language of men, but let's go from the lesser to the greater. You can even speak in the language of angels. You can speak in this unknown language of the heavenly realm. I mean, how amazing would that be? But if you don't love, you are as loud as a noisy gong and a clashing of cymbals. Corinth was an important city in the first century one of the important cities in the first century, very spiritually important to, to, the, to that region and to, and to that part of the world at the time. Uh, one of the big draws of Corinth was the worship of the Greek goddess Sybil. She was the goddess of health. And so you would have pilgrims come to Corinth with maladies and afflictions, and they would seek the blessing of Sybil. And you would have these periodic festivals that took over the entire town. And everyone would throw in all the other gods too. And so you would have the worship of Poseidon and Apollo and Aphrodite and Bacchus and you would have these festivals that go on for days and days, and they were noisy, and they were rowdy, and they were frenetic. And so you can imagine the church in Corinth just witnessing this rowdiness that they're not partaking of, and what do they want? Just shut up. Just stop. The exercise of these valued gifts sounds just like that festival, if there's no love. It's just irritating. It's just grating. It's just noise. Just stop. Without love, who cares? You're just loud. You're just grating. Well, then Paul moves on to another gift. And I think this is a more impressive gift than tongues. He moves on to revelatory gifts, gifts of knowledge and of faith, of being able to explain the deep things of God. It's one thing to communicate God's truth in a different language, but just the idea of communicating these, these difficult spiritual, beautiful truths to people. That's, that's an even greater gift. So verse two, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith, so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Again, when, when we think of prophecy, it's a very broad topic, broad range of what it means. And, and it basically just means this ability to speak for God with authority and boldness and clarity. 
to be able to articulate to, to men and women and children the, the knowledge of God, to explain the mysteries of God and, and mysteries of God, that means we don't know them unless God pulls back the curtain and reveals them. So to be able to explain those mysteries, and, and we still have this, right? We, we are still in awe of great preachers in this day and age. We love a great preacher who goes onto the conference circuit, and we listen to his preaching, and we say, man, like every time he preaches God's word, it just like ministers to my heart. He presents God's word in an absolutely powerful and incredible way. That is the gift of prophecy, of making these deep truths, driving them home. And that's what Paul's talking about. Then you add faith. The author of Hebrews writes that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's one of the essential virtues. It's necessary. You have all faith to even remove mountains, do tremendous things. But if you don't have love, you have nothing. In the Greek, it's, it's literally, you could just say it's, it's zero. It's zilch. It's nothing. And then Paul takes it a step further in verse 3. Remember, he's shocking us. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. We don't need to explain that, right? If I just have everything that I possess, and I divide it up, and I give it out, that's virtuous, that's noble. Life is not about accumulation. Life is not about gain. It's about, it's about love. It's about service. But if I'm just doing all of those actions and don't have love, it's nothing. If I give my body to be burned, we think of martyrs um, through, through social media and, and the internet today. We have connection with the church in Iraq and Iran and China. Just yesterday, churches in India were violently attacked by like these Hindu political nationalists. And we think those are our brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, commit, command from us our respect and honor and we're always confronted would we respond in the same way and paul says you can give everything away you can give away your body but if you don't have love it's nothing it's nothing remember he's shocking us it profits you nothing if there's no love it's such a vital point for corinth and it's a vital point for the church today the church has always valued giftedness we can make the mistake in thinking, and it's easy to do, that giftedness equals godliness. That giftedness is the infallible sign of the presence and power of God. It's not. That's what Paul's saying. It's not. Gifts are necessary. Gifts are helpful. They build up the body. But are gifts the infallible sign of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in his church? I think this is an important word for us as the church. Um, we've all been called to bear witness in this age, which does feel just a little bit crazy. I think we would all come out on some end of the spectrum that this is a, a crazy time to be called to be faithful and to bear witness to the truth and bear witness to the gospel. We're on the precipice of a new year. Um, I don't think there's much optimism heading into 2022. It just kind of feels like life is just kind of truck, trucking along, right? 2020 becomes 2021 becomes 2022. But well, that's okay, because what is the priority of the church? What is the priority for being a follower of Christ? What's essential for the future, for us? And it's that the foundation must be grounded in the pursuit of love. This is a hard time. I don't know anyone that is not exhausted for one reason or another. We're tired. We're all afraid of something. We're all fearful. We're all being judged for fearing the wrong thing. 
And then we in turn judge other people because we believe they're not fearing the right thing. Did I just get an amen? Oh, yeah. I hear you. I see you. We're, we're all living in this pressure cooker of determining our right priorities. But if love isn't where it belongs, it doesn't matter. We're tired, which means it's easy to be content in our disunity. Let me put that in another way. Um, it's easier to be just consumed with myself or to be united with people like me. What threatens the disunity of the church in our age? It's not spiritual gifts like Corinth. Churches can be divided generationally. We want to be with people who are like me, who experience life the way I do, who are going through the season of life that I'm in. Is that a bad thing? No, but it can't be the biggest priority, the greatest priority. We can emphasize minute theological differences or preferences, and here's the thing, in the age of the internet, we can curate voices to feed me the diet that I want to be fed. We're just as politically divided as the broader culture. Churches continue to split, not over spiritual gifts, but masks and COVID. Which, by the way, I think spiritual gifts are far more eternally enduring than masks and COVID. But we can't grow tired of pursuing a more excellent way for like the greatest reason of all is that it pleases and it honors the heart of Christ. And there's no better reason to do anything. In Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking to his return and the destruction of the temple. We looked at this a few weeks ago when we were in the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus gives this really scary, harrowing word. He says, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. What is Jesus saying? I think he's saying that it's easy for the people of God in lawless times. And listen, do we live in a lawless time? Oh, absolutely. Like, we live in a lawless time. And it's easy for the people of God to lose love. To lose love. Like, you think of worldliness, what comes to mind? Do you think of materialism? Sure. Greed. Sexual immorality, yes, those are all completely worldly. And yet Jesus takes the time to warn us that worldliness also means a loveless posture that the world reflects. The church can gain a hard and cold heart. So the priority of the church always has to be this high, high virtue of love. Otherwise, it just doesn't matter. At the end of the first century, you could argue the most amazing church, the flagship church of Christ, was the church in Ephesus. It was a church-planting church. Wonderful church, leadership was great, precise doctrine, courage of conviction. It's one of the churches at the beginning of Revelation that Jesus sends a letter to. And he raves about the doctrinal commitment and courage of the church of Ephesus. And then he says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. The word abandon is the word for a mother who abandons her child. Love is the highest priority collectively of the body of Christ. So you have to give love its proper place, proper priority. So many of the church's problems in history and currently is that we have lost the priority that the Bible gives us. I, mean, I would argue it's a twin virtue. It's love and faith. And these are the things we can never stop pursuing. If you do, if you stop pursuing love, your speech is annoying your gifts are nothing and your sacrifices profit no one. So love belongs at the top of the priorities of the church. 
Our next question is, that's great, but what does that look like? How do you know you have it? What does love mean? Well, the word here is a word that I'm sure some of you know. Uh, it's the Greek word agape. We have churches and ministries that, that use the word agape. And there are different words for love in, in, in Greek, and, and agape is the one that specifically has to do with this love of, of God, at least as the New Testament uses it. Now, prior to the New Testament, this was not a word that was commonly found in, in, in literature. It was, it, was, it was rarely seen. And you could argue the reason for that is the kind of ancient pagan idea of love is exactly the same as, as our current kind of cultural idea of love. It's about eros, attraction. It's cupid. It's conditional. Uh, when I tell someone, like, I, I am in love, what does that mean? It means I get something from someone or something, and there will probably some, be, be some reciprocal love back and forth, but it's I'm getting something, and therefore I'm responding to how I feel toward something or someone. And it's why this message of 1 Corinthians 13 is like a pretty good Christmas-tied message. Because I would argue the incarnation redefines the concept of love. God so agaped the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus. Love is about giving. It's about giving that which is of the most importance to you. Agape love is what God does for us. Galatians 2.20, Paul says this, We live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who is Paul? A persecutor of the church. Someone who despised Jesus, and yet what did Jesus do to Paul? He agaped him. For nothing in Paul. But God loved him and gave himself to him. If you grew up with the King James Version, you might remember this passage a little bit differently. Agape is not translated as love. It's translated as charity. It's pretty good. It's a decent word to characterize what agape is. Because agape love is not normal. It's not ordinary. It's the exceptional thing. And where does it come from? It comes from God. Love is the fruit of a heart that has been gripped by the incarnate saving love of Christ. Love is the fruit, it's the evidence of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Precise theology is important, you can't take it out. The pursuit of holiness is important, you can't take it out. Oh, but love. Love is how you know the Spirit's present. It's all of grace. It's not as if we produce this. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. It's not as if you were worthy of that love. God loved you. He agaped you. He set his affection on you. Might that have implications for everyday life? No doubt. And so what does a loving person look like? Well, you find it here in this famous list of virtues that surround love, that define love. Uh, you see it in the, how the vices show us what love is not. So the first thing to notice as we quickly work through this list, and, and just a warning, this is going to hurt. Hurts. Hurts to read this list. Because love is most closely, first of all, associated with patience. Patience gets at that idea of something that is slow to ignite. It takes a long time for it to burst into flames. Uh, patience, it means it's not combustible. Like, we get impatient about lots of things. Uh, circumstances can make us impatient. Our conditions, maybe like a health condition, it makes us so impatient. We just want change. But most of all, when we talk about impatience, we're talking about people. And patience is a long fuse. Because people cause us to burst into flames. And so patience is enduring those things that annoy you and others. 
Patience is enduring incompetence in others, ignorance in others. People inconvenience you, but you have that slow fuse. And the Bible tells us where love is, there right with it is patience. Love is also kind. Uh, the, the etymology, the root of kindness is, is just, um, it's something like well disposed in the service of others. Leon Morris, the New Testament scholar, writes that kindness is this idea of reacting with goodness toward those who ill deserve it. Maybe something along the lines of grace is involved there. Love is not ruthless. Love is approachable. Envy and jealousy are the vices that tell us what kindness is not. So love rejoices in the success of others, and it aches in the failures of others. A jealous person is perpetually discontent, possessive, controlling, manipulative, but love refuses to be jealous. It is not easily threatened. Love does not boast, as verse 4 puts it. Love is not flamboyant or ostentatious. Love does not demand recognition or praise. The Protestant reformer John Calvin wrote just a beautiful line, love is a stranger to pride. Love is a stranger to pride. It refuses to look down on others, and it's slow to assert itself. Um, If you're the kind of person who's constantly calculating and, and analyzing others, if you're always critical, that is evidence that love is absent. Because love's concern isn't about self. It's not promoting the self, and therefore it isn't rude. Love refuses to behave indecently and in shameful ways. It refuses to make a scene. Love is not fanatical. It's tactful. It's considerate. And the thing that underlies it all is that love doesn't seek its own. It is not selfish. We live in a, in a pretty self-absorbed age. Like it's the water that we swim in. It's the air that we breathe. It's about me. Like I am guilty. Like that is the oxygen I breathe too. Like the greatest um, ideals of life involve isolation and privacy and my own good above all things, but that's not love. Me first, me all the time, me only is not love. Love is not selfish. In fact, love distrusts itself. Love wants accountability. Love is the very antithesis of self-seeking. And so love is not irritable. It's not easily provoked. It's difficult to offend. And love is realistic. People will sin against you. People in the church will sin against you. Now, what makes love joyful? Uh, It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. Love does not get excited when other people fall or when other people sin. Love always sides with the truth, even when it means losing. Losing power, prestige, reputation. Love is always on the side of truth. Love always promotes the truth. Love never hides behind the truth and vice versa. The truth never hides behind love because in walking with Jesus, walking behind Jesus and next to Jesus, it's always pursuing how to speak and bear the truth in love. And when we fail, and we will always fail, or we will sometimes fail, there's repentance. But love bears all things. It believes all things. Strong verbs, right? It bears all the difficulties of life, all the afflictions, troubles, conflicts, controversies. It doesn't easily give way. It embraces responsibility. Love is stable. Love is a foundation. Love believes all things. It's not gullibility. It is the great rebuke to cynicism that it believes all things. It focuses on the best. 
It is the long lost Christian virtue of giving others the benefit of the doubt. Oh, and love hopes. It looks forward. Christian hope is confidence that God keeps his promises. Confident, confidence that God has all of this, that God wins. And so what does that mean? It means you presently can endure all things. And that is a military term. You hold your position to the last man and until the last round is fired. Because God wins. That's the passage. What do we do with it? Where do we close? It's remarkable that this is a wedding passage. That's probably where most of us have heard this in weddings. If you had this at your wedding, this is the no judgment zone on that. Uh, it was read at your wedding because it is astoundingly beautiful, right? It was read at your wedding um, not because you were naive, but because it is just gloriously, just maybe the most beautiful um, couple of sentences in the New Testament. That makes sense. But as beautiful as it, as it is, it's heavy. Maybe it hurts a little bit if we're, if we're paying attention. Uh, the only way this passage remains uplifting and inspiring is if we aren't listening. Or if we just aren't taking it too seriously. My family has been reading through some of an Advent devotional by the, uh, the Presbyterian pastor and, and scholar Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, he's one of the greats. And he has the reader go through an exercise. Uh, when you see the word love in 1 Corinthians 13 or you see it, just put your own name and see how far you get. I'll do it for you, but I'm going to go with I. I'm patient and kind. I do not envy or boast. I'm not arrogant or rude. I don't insist on my own way. I'm not irritable or resentful. I don't rejoice at wrongdoing. I rejoice with the truth. I bear all things. I believe all things. I hope all things. I endure all things. My heart's beating fast right now. My blood pressure is rising. Am I blushing? But then Ferguson doesn't stop there. He says, that's great, but now... When you see love or it, substitute the name of Jesus. Jesus was patient and kind. Jesus did not envy or boast. Jesus was not arrogant or rude. Jesus did not insist on his own way. Jesus was not irritable or resentful. Jesus didn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Jesus rejoiced with truth. Jesus bore all things. Jesus believed all things. He hoped all things. He endured all things. And the good news is that love, uh, it's, it's not that love doesn't matter all that much. It's not that it's okay that I love poorly. It's not that it's okay that you love poorly. It's that love is so important and essential that God sent his son in love to love because he is love. This week I was reading through John's gospel and, uh, and came to John 13 which I think has one of the great lines about Jesus. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Just like a beautiful encapsulation of a love that endures. A love that is patient and kind. 
Everywhere Jesus turned his eyes, he is the perfect son of God. Everywhere he turned his eyes, he was confronted by men who had hands that were so unclean and hearts that were so impure. And he wasn't irritated. And he wasn't resentful. But he gave and he gave and he bore and he hoped and he endured all things all the way to the cross. You could say in all honesty that when Jesus sees you, he sees uh, hands that are unclean and hearts that are impure. And Jesus still isn't irritated or resentful. But he gave and he gave and he bore and he hoped and he endured all things all the way to the cross for you. And so say Jesus' name and feel the relief. Take a deep breath. Find your rest. Because Jesus was all these things, not just perfectly, but savingly for you. If you put your faith in him. If you realize that you can't say your name with that list. Love is our first priority because Jesus loved us to the end and God has given us his spirit to to work this love in our hearts, to, to build us up as the people who love because he is committed to making us more like Jesus. Love is the enduring virtue that the Lord calls you and I to embrace and pursue and not quit on because what's at stake? Everything's at stake in this dark world and and in this evil age. Jesus loved so that we might love. That's our mission to the world. In that same chapter, John 13, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the goal, that we would be identified by our, by our sound doctrine, by our service, by our generosity, but the highest priority, I just think this message resonates today as much as any other time, if not more, is that we would be a people who love one another. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, our our prayer is that you would take a word that is just on a very human level, very beautiful. Um, I have been asked by unbelievers to recite this passage in wedding ceremonies, just to have a touch of the Bible, just a touch of the holy um, adorn a, a solemn occasion. And yet, Lord, would you uh, show us our need to be better lovers of one another? In showing us that need, would you uh, present to us, make us to know and to embrace the, the greater, greatest love of Jesus for us? That we would turn from that love in a, in a way that uh, we would go forward energized by that love, shaped by it, as we seek to love one another better. Lord, this is a room of, of, of people, myself, uh, top of the list who love poorly so often. Yet as we uh, think about even the, the new year that's ahead, would, would love be the priority? 
Would love be what we seek uh, in our relationships with one another and our homes and our workplaces. And Lord, here at the church, um, where you've called us to bear witness to the gospel of King Jesus for a world that's in, in, in so uh, desperate need of that saving message and of that saving love. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts and in our lives? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.